were to look at a, you know, uh, a martial arts master living up in the up in the mountains of Tibet or wherever, right? I would tell you that even at being 80 years old and having that long white beard down to their ankles and that cool martial arts robe, I would say that that master still practices those very basic skills that he learned on day one of class. But now he has still a to long this day. beard. Yes, but he now he does it with a long beard. Exactly. That he can use as a weapon. The true master can like destroy you with his beard. I'm working on that. I'm working on that. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast. You're here with your very first U.S. scuba training podcaster, Jamesy. U.S. scuba training podcaster. From last week. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you got to bring it in from next week. Huh? And your crackless falsifis fish finding... <laughs> Logo creating Brando. Canius Falsifer. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I wanted to be the Satan's counsel or the devil's advocate or however you want to put it today. All right. You get to be that. Okay. I know the people aren't expecting you. No. No. I'm I'm supposed to give all positive comments. Positivity. You're going to throw the people off a little bit if okay. you take devil's advocate role. They're, I don't think they're used to you in that being position. Just, just being argumentative. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not really being. I'm just like, hey, you know, I get, you know, I get enough. The, uh, everything's got to be positive in my own house. I mean, you wouldn't believe the sunshine and rainbows that get forced down my throat every day. So when I do get a chance on the Great Dad Podcast to spew forth hatred and vitriol, I take I take uh, I take you up on it. I, 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 you get you. dressed up for it. Look at I, you today. Get <laughs> me. It's just a t-shirt, sweater. <laughs> get the bow tie on. I hope people know I'm kidding. I, I I have a bad feeling like people don't really think I'm joking too much. That I'm really kind of just. <laughs> An asshole who just argues with everyone. My wife might say that. Wait, are we um, are this we supposed to remind people that this is entertainment? <laughs> this is just for fun. So you can stop with the death threats and uh, whoever that is parked outside my my front yard with the binoculars. <laughs> 
Yeah, so Red Split Finner 97, <laughs> you can stop sending the hate mails. <laughs> well, I have another article from Simon Pridmore. Good old Simon. Did Simon just come out with a book? Am I, am um, I uh, hallucinating that? I thought I saw something come across Facebook that was from Simon that I hit the like. Well, the, it, uh, it might have been this one, The Diver Who Fell From the Sky. Oh, yeah. An adventure novel? Is it like the girl with the dragon tattoo? Yeah. The story of Pacific pioneer Francis Toribiong. I'm not 100% sure if that's a correct pronunciation. <laughs> what is it? How is it spelled? Toribiong. 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 But that's not a spelling. That's from those, <laughs> that's a pronunci- those Palauan <laughs> pronunciations could be a bit different. Nah. Simon's busy. He's a busy dude. Well, if you're just writing diving, books. diving and writing, diving and writing, you got That's a pretty good life, I guess. He hasn't. Uh, he hasn't taken us up on the dive. Dive into Southeast Michigan local <laughs> local ponds, <laughs> local mud holes. But after last couple of weeks of talking about the first U.S. scuba training that we did and we looked at how that original scuba class was and how involved that original class was and how over the decades in order to create a business a, a business an model industry. around scuba diving an industry uh, so we looked at how things got watered down from that original scientific diver program in order to get people done on vacation so that they could go get on a dive boat and have some fun and look at some pretty fishies. And I think our point at the end was, you know, looking at it hindsight decades later, we see that there's divers with certifications that still struggle with some of the basics. Also, we're not attracting the, the new diver either. Yeah, yeah. Like we used to. I mean, it's no longer viewed as a... I don't know, as adventurous as it once was. And that's what happens when, you know, when everybody can do it, nobody wants to do it. Right. It becomes so easy. Yeah. What's the point? A lot of people do it for, you know, the challenge and, you know, it's like anything. And when you see instructors and diving professionals that still themselves come into some training struggling with basic fundamental skills. Well, yeah. That's proof in the pudding that... A hundred dives does not a dive instructor make. Not not a decent one, anyway. Yeah, I would agree with you. Nine times out of ten, I mm-hmm. definitely agree with you. I'm sure there's the exception out there, but... Right, the but the bar, part, the bar yeah. shouldn't be for the yeah, exception. I'm with, you, I'm with you. Yeah. So, this article is called, It All Comes Down to Me. You? Me. I, well, I was trying to blame That's why through divine intervention, I was given this article. <laughs> It came to you in a vision, in a dream. I was on a sandy shoal in my vision. Hmm. The local mud hole. <laughs> when the golden bass <laughs> that one said bass. to me, Jamesy, <laughs> that one bass. It's all up to you. Lake Jimmy Changa there. <laughs> it all comes down to you, Jamesy. But this is about the importance of, as an instructor, what it means to hand out that certification card to somebody. 
It's like knighting and someone. It is. It is in a way with a with a golden snorkel as you tap them on the, shoulder, the shoulder with a golden snorkel. He says, as a scuba instructor, there will be many times when you find yourself inwardly cursing your students. You ever been there? Inwardly? Never inwardly. They, <laughs> I, was I, I, I learned, I remember like one of my mentors when I was a, a kid growing up at the shop. His line was, they just don't listen. They don't listen, yeah. Well, sometimes they don't. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what else to say to that. Uh, well, it goes to you know why are you there in the class? People that are there to learn and to really you know learn to scuba dive and have some fun with it. They're usually pretty easy to teach. Not that everybody has to be a piece of cake, but when no, you're and some people and some people just aren't a piece of cake, right? Right, and which I don't is, mind those which either. Is why As a matter I think of fact, when I kinda... we look at what happened, I, I think that's going back to. I think that is our point: is the class, you know, was mutated to accommodate the ones who were difficult. Mutated. So you know what but, I mean? Yeah. So, well, so that so that everybody could get that card. Well, I, I think mutated kind of is a connotation. It was an accidental you know, a result of changing when actually it, it, was, it was it was mutated. Yeah, it was it metastasized as a better Like a word. cancer. Exactly. I was going to say it was purposely mutated. So that was genetic engineering of a okay. class. So, I mean, and it was the thing I think, and I, I'm hoping I'm speaking for you, that the protest that comes out of us at times is that it was mutated to become less instead of more it was mutated to become it removed valuable portions of the class just so you can get more students in that's all right that's what yeah. that's the gripe i mean he says when they fail to perform a skill properly when they forget something you have told them a dozen times when they <laughs> flutter their arms about pointlessly whenever they are close to the seabed when they just don't get it <laughs> Every time this happens, just remember this little maxim. It all comes down to me. And the $99 per student that's coming in, of which I'll see $2.50. <laughs> all right, yeah, yeah. I get a 2.5% take on this bitch. So just keep that in the back of your mind, and it all comes down to you. You're right. taking on the main responsibility, and you should only be given... 2.5% of the take. Instead of blaming the students. And 0% of the equipment take. Go on. Examine yourself. <laughs> if students cannot learn quickly enough or if they forget things, this is down to you. It's your fault. Yeah. Either you have not taught them well enough or the way you have arranged the session or set the course structure has presented an obstacle to learning that you and they have not been able to overcome, especially, he says, when you're teaching absolute beginners. It is vitally important that you deliver the very best course that you can. You are responsible for turning them into good divers who will love the sport and make part of their lives forever. The habits you teach them can stand them in good stead 
for always. Forever? Forever. An eternity of diving pleasure and enjoyment. Good points. Right, Definitely. A, good points. Yeah, so right, I mean I mean this is one of the basic tenets of why you and I for decades now have not started a scuba class negatively buoyant on the bottom. Well, yeah. <laughs> because decades later they fall back to it. Correct. Yeah. And th- there's a difference between being an inexperienced diver who had a foundation of there's no reason to be negative on the bottom and an experienced diver who always falls back to kneeling on the bottom. Right, because that's the primacy you have going. That's what right. you have in your, your head. That's how things are, are to be conducted. This is not your only responsibility, he says. You are also responsible to the world of scuba diving as a whole, which provides you with a livelihood and depends upon you to provide it with more adherence. He says that as, a, as an instructor, you need to have me. I need to have, it all comes down to me, a pursuit of excellence. And he lists out 13 things that he says that have worked well for him over the years. Starting off, number one, he says, always follow these five steps. These 10 steps. <laughs> oh, a classic. Classic comes back. Boy, the, the old original listeners of Great Dive Podcast they, are going to love that. Oh, yeah, they will. <laughs> always remember. The, it's something I would never forget that Simon told me. Always remember these 10 steps. These five steps to begin with. Go on, Jamesy. In a beginner's course, many of the things we teach are survival skills. The acquisition of these skills is what gives new divers confidence and helps them conquer their fears. Each time you introduce a survival skill, you should take your students through a five-step process. This is how you survive without water. You have to drink your own pee like the survival guy. What was that guy's name? Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls, yes. So is that lesson one? Drink your own pee? <laughs> no, you got to put that in your mask. <laughs> for defogging. After you use, it's got dual purpose now. <laughs> it's P-fog, First, defog. you introduce the threat to their survival. For instance, running out of air or panicking after getting water in their mask. Which I, I like that a lot because mm. most instructors... They're conditioned to tell the student in the unlikely event uh-huh. that you get a little bit of water in your mask. It's 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 okay. Like the fairy, the fairy <laughs> mask mother is going to come down and tap you on the shoulder and help you clear your mask. Fairy mask mother. <laughs> That's pretty good. But in reality, you know, talking about panic setting in. It's a, it's a viable conversation for a new diver. With the mask flooding, especially when you've been told it doesn't hardly ever happen or, you know, the unlikely event, and it'll be just this simple. You just clear it, and then if they struggle with it at all, they uh, come to the conclusion like, what the hell? This isn't right. Something's going bad. It's going south. And then the panic cycle starts, yeah. Second, he says, 
you tell them how they can deal with the threat and thereby survive. Third, you show them what to do. Fourth, you teach them how to do it themselves. And fifth, you get them to practice until they can do it autonomously, automatically, and effortlessly. Or you show them it's not a threat. You know, mask, water in mask is not a threat. It's not a threat. Yeah, and I think that's what he's saying yeah. is you make it so routine yeah. that it no longer becomes a threat. Right. Look for the aha moment that tells you the student has got it. He says, this will usually come during steps two and three, making step four much easier. He mentions that the need to survive can be a highly motivating force, which I, th- I think most <laughs> instruct. Really? <laughs> Like, well, like, it's not what you're taught ahead, to teach ahead. a student, right? I mean, it's it's not what's taught in, to teach most new students. You, you mean that the the idea of your survival is being threatened when you go right. diving? That's not being taught right. to new students, yes. Well, it's not taught to instructors to teach the students. Is what well, I'm it's saying, actually right? what is taught to instructors is exactly the opposite. Is right. You are there to allay their fears, to to... Basically, I mean, in, in many senses, in my mind, you're basically uh, lying to them. You're like, you can't say the D word. You know, they really right. frown on that. You're like, oh, well, hold on. It's a, that is a, the ramification of not doing this class properly is the D word. You know, <laughs> so I think <laughs> to, to put some importance on what you're saying to them, like you're not just up there babbling away for your own you know, edification. You're you're trying to teach them. Like you c- can actually severely injure yourself to the point of the D word. So yeah. If to my, my thinking is, if you say that, that kind of gets their attention and puts the importance and the value of what you're teaching them. Okay. Versus everything's rainbows and starfish kind of thing. Is that, is that a good one? Rainbows and starfish. Yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> I love that one. Simon says that most instructors skip steps one, two, and five. Mm. They don't tell their students why the skill is important. They just show them what to do, watch them do it once, and then move on. Agreed. And that, that this isn't instruction. It's just running through a meaningless mm-hmm. list of, of skills. You could have done that on a video. I think a, a great thing to ask yourself is, what am I doing here that they couldn't get from a video on YouTube? Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And again, reiterating what we just said, this is why so many students struggle at basic skills because all they've done is they've seen it once, they've mimicked it once. It's never really been put into application, into a, to real value, right? like in the moment. Right, that's not mastery mimicking once, A. And, and uh, B, I think a huge thing is you, you haven't seen yourself what you look like doing that. So you're, you have to trust that instructor that he's grading you p- properly, like he's critiquing you properly on your ability to do that particular skill, whatever it may be. So if you just sit there and you, you clear a mask, yeah, you fulfilled the check mark boxes of mass clearing like water went in and you were able to remove it did you do it easily did you do it without thinking really were you 
Did you struggle? Did you lose buoyancy? Did you lose awareness? Did you lose your partner? <laughs> right. Well, and which is why kneeling on the bottom, flooding and clearing your mask and doing it perfectly by textbook and receiving that handshake from the instructor <laughs> has nothing whatsoever to do with the ability to be on a wall dive and right. having water get into your mask and being able to keep your shit together and, and get it out without it, you know, having a downward spiral. Right. Into a major emergency. Or needing to grab onto a coral outcropping or whatnot. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's the difference. Is, you know, I mean, we've said this before. Is the idea of mastery. It's just a word in the, in the manual. It, and it's really left there without definition. Or at least clear or concise definition of what mastery is. Yeah, there's... there's a lot of individual interpretations exactly. of what mastery means. Exactly. And ultimately, it, it means having a consistent practice that you've done on a regular basis mm -hmm. and continue to do well after having it down pat and, and being comfortable with it that never goes away. I mean, if right. you were to look at a, you know, a, a martial arts master living up in the up in the mountains of Tibet or wherever, right? I would tell you that even at being 80 years old and having that long white beard down to their ankles and that cool martial arts robe, I would say that that master still practices those very basic skills that he learned on day one of class. But now he has still a to long this day. beard. Yes, but he has now a he long does it beard with a long beard. Exactly. That he can use as a weapon. The true master can, like, destroy you with his beard. I'm working on that. I'm working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd, I'd like seeing you with the long... Long, white... Long... Well, I got the white part Fu now. Man, long Fu Manchu <laughs> beard. Yes. I think... Uh, the Fu Man Brando, we're going to call man, it. Yeah. The Chu Man... Fu Man Brando. I like that. Essentially, everything's the basics, though, right? We, we go back to that. It's to what degree you have a, a grasp on the basics. How well do you do the basics? Like I remember an old instructor years ago that would talk to the students about taking continuing education. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, oh, you know, uh, on the advanced class, you don't even have to clear your mask once. Yes, yeah, telling you all the things you don't do. It's just right, all yeah. fun diving. Oh, yeah, you can... And he would he would joke about it like, oh yeah, you can get some water in your mask and you can leave it there the whole time if you want. You don't even have to you don't even have to clear your mask once. We're not going to do one. We're single not going to do a gas share. We're not going <laughs> like, to do it like as a joke of like how much easier it all gets. You know, from that point on. And I I get the point of what his joke was trying to say, but you know, I always looked at that as that's kind of the opposite of what you want to. Oh yeah, no, we're going to take all your basic skills and we're going to jump them up a notch so you learn the basics of a basic propulsion technique a basic level of buoyancy control the basic operation of your equipment uh and some basic failures and now we're going to take it out there and we're going to put you a little deeper we're going to make you actually navigate you know uh, we're going to put you at night you know nighttime we're going to have to yeah, we're going to make different you use environments compass, right and we're going to have these same basic skills again. And you're going to see that at first 
you're going to struggle with something so basic and routine that you thought at the end of your open water you had down pat. But now, because you're a little bit out of your element, right? things are different. You and that's, that heat. should be, yeah, that should be that new level two mentality. Like hill. I think. Yeah, yes. that's, that's the hill you climb in that level two of education. I agree. That's exactly how it should go. And, and you should, like I say, it, just take the fundamental basic skills that you already had, those essential core group of skills, and put them, put them to use in a different environment with a little more task loading and, and see what right. happens, right? And then yes. test your awareness. The whole thing is you've got to be able to do those skills in the new environment and maintain awareness of your environment, your equipment, and your team. That's the whole idea of continuing education, I think. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you. Number two, he says, you need to learn to create easy transitions. All new divers must be able to swim before they start the course, but many will not be frequent swimmers or used to being in the water. Some may go into a pool or the sea on their annual summer vacation. Many will never have worn a wetsuit before. Putting them in full scuba gear before they have even got their feet wet may therefore generate unnecessary levels of anxiety and start the course off on the wrong foot. Oh, yeah. I'd agree. Now, the swim test in most classes is... Lackluster. <laughs> um, is. Is. Less kind than. Kind of watched with a vague interpretation <laughs> of the distance, right? Yeah. Because if you drop somebody out of class because they only made it three and three-quarter laps. Yeah. Uh, they're not they're not buying any gear. Right. And somebody that comes back, they haven't been diving in a decade and just gets breezed through a couple of basic, you know, refresher class to get back out on a 130-foot wall, but has zero watermanship, you know, since since they last did their class. Again, you're you're setting your self up as a as a professional in the water that needs to be observing these people but you're setting them up too for something to go wrong anxiety hit to be uncomfortable you look at what we just talked about the last couple of weeks with that first u.s scuba training and how much swimming those guys had to do before they even got a mask fins and snorkel in their hand and you look at what Dottie frazier was doing in her early classes it was Weeks of swimming and weeks of skin diving before they put on scuba gear mm-hmm. to create a much more confident diver in the water once they got through with the course. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that all the time. The the parts of the course that have been taken out that remove, I mean, you also t- took away the confidence building exercises when you remove those things, those what were deemed unnecessary skills. Remember years ago, as a scuba instructor, when they really started to push, start diving today. Yeah. And they changed the course to, why are you waiting, bringing somebody (laughs) in and putting them immediately through a swim test and a water tread and beating them up? Just the first thing you should be doing is putting them on scuba and they can breathe underwater and blow right. bubbles. And they're going to go, oh, man, yeah. this is so amazing. And, yeah, this is great. 
And they really have structured over the last couple of decades to move the class in that fashion. And then ah, at the very end, oh, yeah, we got to knock out this swim test. Mm -hmm. And what Simon's saying here is you've got somebody that is not a water person, but they, they're going on that trip to Grand Cayman and they want to scuba dive. There, there's, here's two schools of thought. Mm -hmm. Either I just slap some gear on them, get them breathing underwater. Uh, they cleared their mask. They did, you know, they pulled out their octo. Um, they did a fin, <laughs> they did a fin pivot. Ah, they 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 sucked at the swim, almost drowned, barely made it five minutes on the water tread. Ah, you'll be fine. Yeah. Versus easing somebody into that transition of being a complete landlubber to getting comfortable in the water, just being comfortable with water on your face, being comfortable in water over your head with no equipment, and then easing your way into this new world of, of scuba. Mm -hmm. That's a business viewpoint, you know. It's like uh, writing a book. You need to have a hook at the very beginning to, keep them, to get them into the book, right? And that's what they're looking at with the scuba. Whereas swimming laps and the rest of the requirements that we have to make sure you can do, to become certified those are just that's filler stuff that's not the hook they want the hook right in the beginning the industry right right he says today's beginner courses may be much shorter than the past but the three elements swim snorkel and scuba are still there and can be scheduled to make new students as relaxed as possible during the swimming sessions Students can be encouraged to swim underwater holding their breath, which is an excellent mini skill to prepare them for mask exercises and the no mask swim on scuba. We talked about that, I think, last week. Yes. About no mask swim and breath holding swim and a minute breath hold were standard parts of learning. Right. 20, 20 plus years ago. Oh, yeah. Well, it gives you a great baseline of, you know how long you can actually sit there without any gas in your mouth. So when the regulator gets kicked out or you've got to buddy breathe with someone that you don't really, the panic never sets in because right, you're, exactly. you've already done this. Yes, I've, I just watched you, even if they suck, Yeah. right, and they only held their breath for 20 seconds right? and were gasping for air, right? It, it's taken you five seconds to find your regulator. Mm -hmm. I, I, we, we just did this so you can hold your breath for 20 you've got no reason to jump up out of the water in a panic you've, you've got plenty of time what you're trying to learn here is to take control of your brain underwater right and that's what that confidence building uh, realm of exercises do is they allow you to take control underwater because it just builds your confidence that's what it's there for you know it's true. Nobody, it's very unlikely someone's going to come and rip your mask off. But it's not very unlikely that it's going to get kicked off. So you have right. to simul simulate the kicking off by taking it off of the person. You know, that's what always got me was this is viewed as some kind of, you know, uh, harassment, a military harassment attacking underwater thing. The reality of it is it's viewed, it, it, it's to simulate an accident. Right, and accidents are generally violent in a way. Yeah, well, that's the thing is you get when it's, you get kicked in the nobody's face. Nobody's gonna yeah. come up by and tap you on the shoulder and say, "Hey, you mind if I kick you in the face?" Right, right now it it comes out of nowhere, and if your reaction is get me up to the surface, yeah, that's you, not a good situation. 
and that's exactly what <laughs> what will happen if you've never been introduced to the accidental mask removal, <laughs> where every time it's a hand coming out in front of you, take off your mask. It's a little bit different than when it gets, you know, snagged on something or kicked off or whatever, whatever happens to it. It falls to the bottom of the uh, deep blue sea off your head. Right, because everybody that goes down to Cozumel, regardless of how good their training was or how experienced of a diver they are, everybody wants to go do Devil's Throat because it's the, the, the big awesome dive, right, where you're going to cram all 12 of those divers on the boat or maybe all 24 of those divers <laughs> on the boat are all swimming Ooh. through that little swim through face to fins the whole way through. Right. And you're popping out in 130 plus feet of water. Does anybody go, what would happen <laughs> if <laughs> the guy in the middle panicked? No, no, we just, we ignore that fact. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We have 24 other divers down there. One of them's an instructor, too, or a dive master, at least. He says, build habits. This goes back to the fifth step in skill acquisition that he mentioned above. Focus your water sessions on building habits. Good if habits. you require your divers to perform skills over and over again and practice them so much that they never forget them, they will thank you. And the people who dive with them and teach them in the future will thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah, to me, when I was teaching open waters especially, there was, I mean, that was always a huge compliment when I would hear from the instructor down wherever, came in Cozumel, Palau, anywhere. There, the instructor would send a note or let you know, hey, thanks for doing a great job. That person was a piece of cake to, to go through their checkout dives. Right, right. Uh, they had a real good grasp on scuba diving and were comfortable in the water and uh, had a lot that of fun. Makes, that makes you feel better than doing the certification yourself almost. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah Knowing yeah. that you pass that to a complete stranger and they take the time to thank you. Right. And, I mean, that was a, a big majority of the open waters up here in Michigan, especially, you know, when we're teaching in the winter. Everybody's going uh, down south. Not a lot of folks are, like, banging the door down to go jump in a quarry to get their open water cert dives done. He says in here, again, talking, talking to these instructors, that doing the same things time and time again builds conditioned responses, and these can save a diver's life. Muscle memory, man. Underwater, it is very hard for divers to reason their way out of an emergency as time pressure, narcosis, and carbon dioxide buildup interfere with their decision-making processes. Yeah, a lot of times, uh, that's why you have to aim that training at pre preventing that stuff. You know, uh, right, namely the CO2, right? The CO2 buildup, yeah. But I'd agree, that all factors into the uh, behavior underwater, especially during any kind of crisis. But back to habits, yes, and I, I teach this to my kids too, the, you know, human mind wants habits. That's what it, it craves. It, that's what it works for. It looks for habits. So you can either make your life full of good habits or make your life full of bad habits. But either way, your mind, when you start going down that route, that's what your mind is going to cling to. So if you start a bunch of bad habits, being lazy, eating 
all the time, you know, all the seven deadly sins or whatever you want to say, uh, you're, you're going to have a rough time of things because those habits become instilled versus get up in the morning, make your bed, do some exercise, eat a good breakfast, you know, go give it your all every day, try to keep a positive attitude, all that stuff becomes a habit. It becomes, uh, it gets to the point you can't not do that stuff. It just happens right. naturally. It's, it's, uh, it's instinctive. Right, exactly. And that's the same thing. You know, scuba is just a microcosm. You can do the exact same thing. Build the good habits. Build, uh, you know, the Yeah, you want, the, you want your student as you're, as you're developing them to know that when an emergency is happening, you fall back to buoyancy, mm-hmm. breathing. Right? And that is your instinct. Do I have control of my buoyancy? Do I have control of my breathing? What is going on? Can mm-hmm. I get control of my brain to, to solve this emergency underwater? And if you've only done three mass clears and you got your certification card, the chances of that happening out in real life in the field is pretty unlikely. Oh, no. no you, you, it's you really need unlikely. That, yeah. You need that intense repetition. Oh, yeah. When everything starts going south, it's usually not like one thing. Like you'll... You'll get snagged or you drop something and then your mass starts flooding or, and you start losing buoyancy control. And that, that snowball just starts right there. That's where it right, starts. Right. <laughs> and then you can't find your partner and then, you know, you really can't see much or your light fails at a night dive, you know. Yeah, and uh, we have done many of those lessons for life. I learned from diving mm-hmm. articles over the years, which it, that's – Really, every one of those emergencies isn't one the buddy team got separated. Mm-hmm. It was something led to something, which led to something, which led to something, which led to the buddy team getting separated, which led to an out of control ascent in a panic, and you, you find the diver, you know, drifting at sea. Very, it's very rare that that something leads to un- underwater something leads to something to something else and then it leads to eventually you coming back on the boat going to the bar and having tequila shots and ending up waking up the next morning with a beautiful woman that you met <laughs> that rarely happens when all that stuff leads <laughs> just letting you know wait 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 that's uh <laughs> that's how my story with uh, the golden the golden bass <laughs> when he when he said to me he that said uh Jamesy, oh Jamesy, it all comes down to you, and you will end up with a beautiful woman having tequila shots. Yes. Number four, Simon says, allow time for reflection. Meditate. You get to meditate Which after is, every class. Well, yeah, in Seven a way, minutes. right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is the problem with getting certified in. McDonald's like fast food mentality. Yeah, this yeah. is the problem with in, in in a weekend is like you can knock out ten mass clears in a row and and say, hey, I'm going out of my way to make sure my student does more mass clears. But if they haven't had time to internalize it, right? It, it's gonna be it's gonna go out of them as quickly as it was delivered to right. them, right? Albeit was a great um, start and it was uh, great intentions. If you again, if you don't allow the student to really, uh, like you say, the, a good word is internalize it to to actually put that skill into their toolbox, if you will. And yeah, they, for they, sure, they can pull it out at will. You know, versus it's just a skill they did 
and it's really not there at will for them. They have to go through a little, you know, ceremony in their head before they do it. Yeah, it's I don't know if, if we use sense. an as if we use an analogy that stays within the the scuba world, it's like being a dive master or an instructor who takes a repair clinic on a regulator. Hmm. Right, you're there, you break that regulator completely down, you learn all the parts, how to put it together, how to test it. If you don't work on that regulator for <laughs> for five yeah. years, yeah. right, you, you might as well have never even taken that class because it, it's going to be so new to you still. Right. Even you though to... you intensely went through an intense program. That's why you have to be recertified so often in those repair clinics because they know most repair guys aren't doing see it every the day. same regulators so infrequently or, or they'll have one or two that they see all the time that they can do in their sleep mm-hmm. but so many of the other ones they get one a year mm-hmm. oh yeah i know from working working wrenching on rags all the time to now where i only wrench on my own rags albeit i have a good collection of them it still it doesn't go as quickly as it used to it takes me you know almost two hours to do a full rag setup versus it was probably about an hour in my heyday, if I was being honest. Simon says, you cannot assume that just because people have been exposed to a piece of information once, they will consequently understand it, remember it, and be able to apply it. You have to teach it, repeat it a number of times and in different ways, and then, crucially, allow your students time to think about it. Mm-hmm which is where the value of doing the multi-week class locally at home is so much more valuable than doing the quickie, knock it out in a weekend or doing it real fast on the cruise ship, right? Mm -hmm. Is because you've had, you know, two days this week to do class and you got a whole weekend to, to think about it and wish you were back in class and have dreams about it over the weekend. And you you come into (laughs) class the next week and you're telling your instructor about, Oh, I had a dream. I was clearing my mask in, in a coral reef. It was so fun. (laughs) Those are quite the dreams you're having. I'm still uh, at the bar with tequila. Oh, We had tequila shots (laughs) and uh, I was a beautiful woman. Exactly. Those are my dreams now. <laughs> I can honestly say I've never had a dream of clearing my mask on a reef, ever. He says, so if you have to teach courses quickly, introduce mini breaks into them to give students time to reflect, explaining to them what you're doing and why. Yeah. So that it's spread out and they have time, once again, to internalize those skills. Number five, Simon says, you need to identify and preempt learning obstacles. Anticipate likely barriers to learning to ensure you organize things so that you avoid them. If barriers arise, have the discipline to dismantle them quickly and have the self-awareness to be able to spot occasions when it is actually you, the instructor, who are creating the barrier. He says, for instance, cold. If divers are cold, they cannot think clearly, and they will not learn. Yeah, well, it definitely um, infringes upon the ability for divers, new divers, to pick up on things. I mean, new divers especially, yeah. Very distracting. 
it's one of the things that you you have to realize you know uh we just dealt with doing that ice class a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. but even teaching early in the season late in the season especially when we do some of these classes where you're in the water so much longer you've got to be able to read your students and if if you can visibly see that they're cold blue lips you can tell like i can read it like a like a book (laughs) that uh like what I'm saying is going in one ear and out the other and I'm cold too. So I just want to get through the skills so that we can get done. But you have to realize they're not learning. Although no. you got through everything, they're not learning anything at that point. Uh-uh. They're learning. It's cold diving. Scuba diving is cold. <laughs> That's what they're learning. Yeah. Keep them, keep them warm. He mentions don't put them in the water until they absolutely have to be to do the dive you know and that's one thing you see you know people unless it's hot out uh, well, and, and there's, <laughs> the other, there's the other well there's right. an other end of that right mm-hmm. is when it's hot out you need to get them in the water to keep them from the other end of that thermal that thermal stressor poor quality equipment inadequate and poorly fitting equipment has an adverse effect on learning because it distracts students and generates stress don't give the students poor quality, cheap rental equipment that even an experienced diver would feel awkward using. <laughs> what what I, can you say about that? <laughs> I think nowadays you, you see less of this than you did back in the olden days. You know, I remember when when I was doing my open water class, the instructors would come. They had two big bags of regulators that they would show up with. Mm-hmm. And... The first day of class, you didn't know what the hell you were grabbing. You just, you got to grab a regulator and you put it on. But by by the the third week of class, you're like, oh, uh, yeah. I'm not Number, getting that yeah. shitty one again. Number 22 is the good one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Time pressures also, he mentions. Students have enough to think about without becoming victims of the time pressure that instructors always have looming at the edge of their mind when teaching a course. This time pressure is yours, so keep it to yourself. Always be alert for signs of student anxiety caused by the pace you are setting in order to keep up with your schedule and be prepared to take a break or change the activity if you detect that the students are flagging. D mentions ego. Your own ego can be a barrier to student learning. Your defects as an instructor may be difficult for you to perceive yourself And this is one of the reasons why asking another instructor to peer review you as you teach can be a great idea. That's a great idea. Instructors almost always work alone, and another instructor will often spot bad habits that you cannot see. Just like we're trying to do when we're building these essential skills in a diver that are already certified divers with a lot of times many certifications under their belt already, but they don't realize... The, the, all these little idiosyncrasies that we have, that's you know the value of, ha- of doing a class like, like you and I enjoy teaching. Right. But you as an instructor have to realize you need we, it are, too. we have our own <laughs> idiosyncrasies right. and, and things that, that we overlook and move past because you know, we don't want to deal with or, or don't want to struggle with or, or is holding up our class. We don't even realize we're doing it sometimes. Well, you're only human. I mean, you're Correct, only yeah. human. You're going to, no matter... What you do, the it's it's subjective because you have to bring you into the equation. So you add your own little pros and cons, and yeah, the ego can be a 
can be an obstacle for you to get better. He says anyone can tell a gifted individual what to do and then watch on while he does it right the first time, every time. It takes a good instructor to teach people to dive who could never have managed it on their own. If your ego is going to intervene, let it steer you towards challenges to your students rather than away from them. You know, a lot of instructors are under pressure to just make sure all 10 students get certified. Well, yeah. Yeah, because there, there's more likelihood of equipment sales. Personality clashes, he mentions. Mm. Again, this is a barrier to learning for you to dismantle as soon as it appears. Every so often, you will encounter a student who you just do not like as a person. When this happens, you have to remind yourself that your personal feelings about the students you teach are completely irrelevant to the process. You have to be professional and treat all students equally. Should kind of go and, without saying, but... And uh, by the way, he, he does also make a little note about the opposite applies as well. <laughs> if exactly. uh, you find one that not so much you dislike... You. Yeah. But one that you like a whole lot. Mm-hmm. You can be doing it subconsciously. You don't even realize it. Right. But the rest of the class sees it. I can promise you that. That, that. that stuff is hard to find, hard to hide. Brandon, that was a very, very <laughs> good regulator to snorkel exchange, if you know what I mean. On the other hand, if you want to make everyone in the class hate someone, you can always do that. <laughs> Hey, I want uh, I want everybody to see how so and so is doing this because they they really got it down. And then if there's that one girl in the class that really has a crush on you as the instructor, and she's getting jealous because you're you're purposely going to to Deirdre Deirdre who is always doing everything right, and she's a hot little number herself. But old Ashley, she's got the hots for you. For me? The figurative you. <laughs> hey, it all comes down to me. We learned that at the beginning. It all comes down to me. Simon told us that in the beginning. Yes. Number six, teach defensive diving. He says, to be a safe motor vehicle driver, you have to learn how to reduce risk by anticipating dangerous situations, taking into account adverse conditions and the actions of other drivers. This process is called defensive driving. Right from the start, teach your students to dive just as they would drive, watching the ocean as they watch the road, observing other divers in the same way they would watch out for other drivers. Teach them why and how diving accidents occur so they know what to avoid. That uh, avoiding other divers thing, that's, I think about that. You know, like when I'm driving, like going to a parking lot, I don't park near anybody because... The people are nuts in the parking lot now. They, they're doing 30 miles an hour down the aisles of the parking lot. Right. Right? They're, uh, they just whip into any parking space. They don't care about their spacing. and So I park way far away from people. Plus, I can use the walking in my old age. Right, yeah. Every little bit like helps. I don't like I it drives me crazy when I see like three cars lined up waiting to get that <laughs> the second spot, spot away from the door. Exactly. Right. Right. I, I just always drive to the back of the parking lot, get a nice easy spot. Exactly. It, it takes me an extra minute of walking. 
And Round trip, another yeah, there's minute of walking. Not really many carts flying around out there, right. et, cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing with the divers. If you see a big group of divers, go the other way. <laughs> Just go the other way. It's that simple. Incorporate stress management drills. He has for number seven of his tips. Every instructor must understand how people make decisions under stress, and new divers need to be able to identify how and when stressful situations can take place. Know that stress is a risk factor to be managed and practice ways to manage it. Again, that's why like, I've, I've taken you know, some heat for it in the past. And I know you have, but trying to teach a realistic class versus versus such a sugar-coated program mm. that nothing can go wrong, yeah, that, that diver's going to leave the open water program with a big smile on their face that they just did something great. But in my opinion, if, if all you've done is just sugar-coated everything so well and never brought to, to the realization of, of real problems, right? you're not setting up that diver well for the long term you're ripping that diver off you're yeah you are not giving them what they came for which is adequate training to prepare them to go at an entry-level scuba (laughs) now i'll combat that with Uh i remember having a dive master candidate that uh, this is going back 15 plus years and they gotta they gotta do their first dive briefing right you know it's yeah. part of their training i learned how to do a dive briefing and hit the hit all the points and stuff so don't I, listen to me you're all he gonna starts die. off his <laughs> he starts off his dive briefing like a shark can smell one single drop of blood in two million gallons of water <laughs> That's to me. That is the way you do begin a briefing. It's hilarious. Did he have a peg leg too? Or? <laughs> yeah. A shark can smell a drop of blood. Twenty billion gallons of water. That was old Blackbeard Bob. Twenty square miles of open sea. A shark can smell one single cell of blood. Number eight. Use realistic scenarios. You know, you and I have been putting this into even our most basic of programs for Mm -hmm. decades now. What are you going to do when the boat sinks and lands on top of you? What are you going to (laughs) do? Scenario. That's swimming along. (laughs) That's why I always have a 500 pound lift. uh, That's why I always dive. With a jack connected <laughs> to a retractor on my on my hip D ring, I always put a camera pointed at myself and kind of angled up on a long pole, and that's how I can see what's going on above me. He says, "Teach skills and drills and procedures that are representative and reflect real life diving situations, even in a swimming pool environment. With a little imagination, you can create realistic scenarios." For instance, you can rope off an area at the side of the pool to give students an idea of what it's like to prepare for a dive in the sort of a confined space that a dive boat deck offers. Yeah. Then run the pool dive with the elements of an ocean dive and 
including equipment assembly, briefing, entry, waypoints, exit, debrief, cylinder, changeover, even offer refreshments. You know, so rather than having that whole entire pool deck work from a really confined space like they're going to have to deal with when they right. get out on a dive boat next week. That's a good idea. Yeah, I like to teach them other skills, too. I mean, that, that was always a complaint is you really weren't allowed to teach outside of the uh, curriculum. But, you know, teach them losing your fin. A yeah. lot of people, one, one fin diver... If you don't know what to do, you're like, what the hell? Don't, what the hell? <laughs> if you lose your fin, if the strap breaks and the fin goes off into the deep blue, it's hard to swim without fins. It's difficult to swim with one fin unless you know how to do it. And it's not it's not brain surgery or anything. It's stupid shit, but it's little stuff. Sure, but it's stupid stuff. But it's uh, it's more, in my opinion, what happens to your brain and your thinking right. when somebody loses a fin more than it is trying to swim with one fin. You're exactly right, and that's that's exactly the point is what happens. Right, to it's your like brain. Uh, like I I have added into just my basic open water class. I make my students take their fins off, put them on the side of the pool. Try and then swim, swim over, like at the end of class on one of the later nights, you know, swim over to the ladder mm-hmm. to climb up. Right. Right, with no fins on. Right. And Just imagine I, I if there's a current. <laughs> yeah, then I have that discussion with them, and they're like, oh, my God, that was so hard. Why did you make it? Oh, you're such a jerk. Uh, and I go, well, all right, so think about it. Like, here's the boat. So the boat's tied up at the bow. Like, where is all the surface current going? Going behind Away you, from this mm-hmm. ladder. Mm-hmm. So here you are in a pool. Think about what that's going to be in real life. So when you're out there 10 feet away from the boat and you take your fins off, you're never going to get there. Or you drop your fins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> drop oh. your fins getting up on the boat. or Yeah. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Or fall off the back deck from a big wave. I mean, those are all valuable learning points mm-hmm. that you as the instructor – are trying to pass on all those years of knowledge that you have so that when they do get into the real world, they've had a little bit of exposure to the real world, even even though they've only been in a pool so far. Right, and they've actually learned something from your experience. I mean, that's that's what we talk about. That's what I mean by you're bringing your experience into the classroom. So, like, what you're talking about isn't in the curriculum, per se, but you're giving it to them like, this is stuff that happens. This is what really happens when you go diving. People drop their fins. People take off their fins too soon. People lose their masks. You know, you can go on all day with all the stuff that people do. That could happen to you. So, yeah. He says, so if your training agency requires you to teach a skill in a way that you feel does not reflect a real-life diving situation and could be improved upon, raise the issue with a more experienced instructor or trainer first and if you are still not satisfied with the answer challenge the agency directly you mean the fin pivot isn't based in reality (laughs) you mean you're not going to run down to do a fin pivot in the event of some kind of issue that's that kind of got me is like okay we got this fin pivot thing which i understand is there to help you develop the the breath control buoyancy thing too so you can actually kind of see it all right, I get that that what it's it's about, but I, I don't know. In my experience, it's not the greatest skill. 
to be teaching. No, I, I gave up teaching the, the fin pivot long ago. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't equate to reality is the thing. It's not something that you use in reality. They're using it as a building block, but you're supposed to toss it to the side. And then my right. argument is, but you throw out— then it's, not, then it's not a building block. Right. You throw out us taking a mask off someone. We can't take a mask off someone. Well, the reality is that's a real skill. The mask doesn't – you don't take your mask off underwater and accidentally lose it. It's kicked off of you. It's bumped off of you. You turn to one side and it gets whacked, you know, et cetera. So I guess what I'm getting at is you have that, that silly skill, which you're supposed to get rid of, and they got rid of the mask-taking skill because they said it's not based in reality because nobody's going to come and take your mask. And I say, well, yeah, because we're trying to simulate an accident. And I can't simulate an accident. I can't plan on an accident because the, by nature of being an accident, it's unplanned. So you Correct. have to make it happen. Anyway. Don't encourage dependency. Don't. He says instructors get used to students depending on them. Many actually grow to like the feeling. However, while dependency may give a boost to the instructor's ego, it is not at all good for the student. Why? Because the instructor will not be around when the student goes diving after the course is over. By the time they graduate, all students should be able to dive independently at the level of their training with other divers of similar ability. The aim of every course, therefore, should be to take the students to the point where the instructor is no longer required. Meaning that on the final dive of the course, the graduation dive, the instructor's primary role is merely to observe and debrief. If the students are still dependent in any way on the instructor's presence to execute the dive successfully, then they are not ready to graduate. Which is why... My agency has got experienced dives at the end of every dive that we do. Right. You know, or, or, or at the end of every class that we do for that reason. Right. Okay, th- we've done everything. We've, we've done all these skills. We've, we've done all this learning, all this development to get you to this new level. Now, go do these dives that you're trained to, and I'm just going to shadow you and make sure you got this down. It's a, it's a very valuable part of, of learning and really gives that confidence to the diver for going out next weekend and doing those dives. Yeah. You're giving them a card to go do. Plus, it's like it, the typical ahead. advanced class where you, you, you take the student to 51 feet. 61 feet. On the, well, it's cold <laughs> water, so oh. we're, allowed to, we're allowed to count it as 10 feet deeper. So well, that's just... You know, and then and then you're is giving really them a card to go. To, is it really allowed to be counted ten feet deeper? I don't I, think it should be. I don't be, think but, it but is. Are you are you telling me there's not instructors out there that have been doing that? For oh, decades? I know they do it, but it's it, and the then they whole give them a card. Is, that's to, just the tables. That's not actual depth, yeah, clown. I agree with you 100. percent That's like doing a repetitive dive. You can say, well, we have to count it as uh, whatever because of the we've done a dive within so many hours. We can count it. We're counting it as something deeper. Anyway, it's along the well, same the, line. The, the point is, though, but so they're giving them a, then a card at the end of the class that says go to 100. Yeah. You, and you, 151 or even 61 is not the same dive. No, no. Well, the whole, the whole thing you're supposed to be learning 
you can't really learn in, in shallow. You're supposed to be learning about the gas consumption, the effects of carbon dioxide buildup, the the increased awareness that is needed, and the increased ability to move fluidly through the water without effort as you go deeper. But that's not taught at 51 feet. You can't teach it at 51 feet. You can't simulate depth. No, you're supposed to be taking care of that back on the open water class. Right. Right, to get them comfortable with all those basic skills in that 50 to 60 foot range. And that's the point of the advance is now we're going to move to deeper water where you have that psychological stressor that you're using more gas. Can I still maintain these basic skills in this new environment? Or you can pretend. And, and, you, build, and you build the confidence into the student so that they're confident on their own, not just confident if the instructor's right there ready to help them out if something right. goes wrong. Right, because th- in their mind, they know they've never been to 60 feet. You know, I don't care if the table says we use a 60-foot schedule. They know they haven't been to 60 feet or 70 so, feet or Yeah, so you've feet. built zero confidence. Right, exactly. Number 10, complete the job. He says, if the students have not reached the required level on the final dive of the course, then you must have the strength of purpose to continue their training beyond the designated class timescale. Rather than just hand the students their certification cards, pose for photos, and consign them to an uncertain future, tactfully suggest instead that they sign up for a couple more dives in your company first to perfect their skills or get really comfortable. The students will rarely object. Generally speaking, they know how able they really are. Number 11 is review and assess. After you complete a course, take time to review everything. Look for things you could have done better. If you work under time restrictions, examine particularly how efficiently you used the time at your disposal. If you had students who had difficulty with elements of the course, try to identify any barriers to learning that might have been responsible. Never be satisfied, he says. Always take the attitude that you will never teach the perfect training course, and there are always areas where you can improve. Which is why I like giving my students a chance to critique me at the end of every class too, right? And you try to mold that a little bit better next time and next time. And you're always, as an instructor, should be working towards improving your own game a little bit, a little Mm -hmm. bit, a little bit. Just as a diver, like you're always trying to be a little bit smoother with your buoyancy, a little bit cleaner with your kicks, a little bit more controlled uh, doing a gas switch on a a deeper dive, uh, making that ascent. As an instructor, you're trying to do the same thing as well. Number 12, he says, think outside the box. Sometimes you will need to be creative to get the job done. Training agency guidelines are designed to deal with issues that students typically have. But you will sometimes encounter situations that your training has not prepared you for and that your manuals do not cover. True. That's why, as an instructor, you should pursue continuing education yourself. Diving with more experienced people taking further training classes beyond what you're actually doing for dives on a regular basis. Taking diving. Work, 
yeah, diving, just diving, just diving in general, not taking different little workshops that are going to improve you as a diver so that you're exposed to more places. I mean, that's why we talk so much about the value of experience and not just a hundred dives at the same little location in, um, in order to be an instructor is so that you've been exposed to so much stuff outside of the environment that you're regularly teaching in so that you can draw from a, a, a competent knowledge base when these oddball, weird, one-of-a-kind issues occur. Mm-hmm. Simon says you owe that to your student, the person who has paid you for the course, and you owe it to yourself to maintain high standards of service and integrity. And lastly, number 13, number 13 in his 13 ways to provide a better class that he's learned over the years. He says, be a team player. He says, although instructors mostly work alone or with junior assistants, they are rarely autonomous. They will usually work through or for a dive operation that supplies most of the instructor students and therefore has a significant say in how a course is conducted. In a perfect world, your goals as the instructor will match those of the dive operation, but this is unlikely to happen without trust, understanding, and respect on both sides. This often takes time and a considerable degree of diplomacy to achieve. And that's what we talked earlier is that balance between the dive shop owner and the dive instructor. Getting the class done in a reasonable amount of time and ensuring that the student is competent to hit the open water on their own, independent of you, the instructor. That's a, that's a balance that, like he says, in a perfect world, it wouldn't be a struggle, but it often is. Again, it's to me the industry... The industry shot themselves in the foot in the long term. Yes, in the short term, they may have gained more divers, more, I don't even want to call them divers, more students to come into a diving class. But the the cheaper class, the $99 versus the $500 class, the student's going to go, who, who are you going to go to? If you, if you went, you were uncertified, you didn't know about diving, you look up some dive shops. One's got a $500 class, gives you open water certification. The other's got $99 class, open water certification. Gives you an open water certification, right. yeah. You're like, what's the difference between these two? They're both by the same, you know, same certifying agency, or maybe they are different. What's the difference between the agencies? And you've got to start looking it up, and you find out, wow, the largest one is the cheapest one. They're recognized worldwide, and it's good for the rest of my life. Uh, I'll just, I'm just going to go here. Right? Obviously. That's... Yeah. But I mean, the other side of that is, I guess, well, it's not really the other side because. Well, I mean, even like, so when you look at a, uh, like a $500 scuba class. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're, you're so the, your typical program of, of two nights a week for, you know, a couple hours of classroom, a couple hours of pool over six nights. I mean, you're talking 20 bucks an hour. Right. You're not making 20, 20 bucks an hour. I mean, it's not, 
you're not getting you know, a it, crazy pay rate. You're not getting brain right. surgery pay rate. No. Oh, and the, the, there was books in there and pool rental fee in right. there and scuba gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so when you look at paying ninety nine dollars for a scuba class, you got to think like, what that guy's getting paid as the instructor, mm-hmm. and how much is he really going to give a damn when push comes to shove? He isn't. When he's making four bucks an hour, maybe. Right. He isn't going to get. He or she will not put the same value on that that coursework. You know, I'm not going to leave my family at home all the time and and go make you know a hundred dollars over four weeks' time. It's ridiculous. Right. It's stupid. But uh, yeah, it, the thing is, the the community, the industry is inundated with the ninety nine dollar classes or even one hundred ninety nine dollar classes because I know somebody's going to be saying, "No, we got to double that." But in reality, the class, even at five hundred dollars, is still a bargain. In this, in, in, as far as the amount of work that the instructor puts in, and if you started getting instructors that were really worth their salt, I mean, even five hundred dollars isn't enough for them. He says a successful partner, <clears throat> a successful partnership is more likely between the instructor and the shop if A, an instructor understands that the dive operation needs to make money mm-hmm. and tailors courses with this in mind, and B, if the operation understands that good, conscientious training fosters customer retention and a good reputation brings in more customers. Exactly. Yeah, it feeds right. that's on a, that's own. a that's a a key one right there. I mean, that's a ringer of mm-hmm. a of a sentence. As easy it is for the you know a shop owner to look short term of more students, more open water divers, buy in mass fins and snorkel, cycle them through, get them through, and not caring about the quality versus taking the time to to build a long term relationship with the customer because they've got the confidence and competence is far more valuable in my opinion. Well, you got to look at the two groups too. You've got one group being, you know, whipped through the class real quick. They get the card, they might go out and dive. They may not go out and dive. They may just have gotten the card and that's it. That's as far as they're going to go. The vast majority of them, they don't have any value in that coursework. Because it was wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It was easy. They did not have to invest into that class mentally or even financially versus a class that really challenges you, that gives you something that's of value, that's truly of value. Because, A, you put money into it, and you know the instructor gave back that value and money. You get what you pay for. It's going to make you you want to come back for the second one. Right. And those divers stay in diving. Yeah, versus going out and looking for something else to give you what you feel is still missing out of your education. Right. You didn't become competent, so you kind of gave up the whole diving thing because you you weren't comfortable because you took a cheap-ass class (laughs) that, you know, shotgunned you through it. You got your silly card. And maybe you went diving, maybe you didn't, versus the people that stick with diving. And that, you know, if you can build that clientele, then those people talk to non-divers. That's my whole thing is like when other divers are talking to non-divers and they say, yeah, the class was $99, I was done in two weeks, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable, but I was certified. 
uh, right versus somebody who best class yeah and they've got they go actually go out diving bring back the pictures and they continue diving and the other the people that are non-divers see that and go what's going on over there I want to I want to go check that out. He seems to really be enjoying himself or she seems to really be enjoying herself at this. So if more facilities realize that putting in the slower more intense class doesn't necessarily have to be the opposite of making money. Right. In in, in fact they can merge together. In the long term I think they actually I mean my personal opinion and it, and for what that's worth, <laughs> actually, in the long run, that builds a stronger business. That builds I would agree with you. a clientele and a reputation, right? So you 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 can ask for the five hundred dollars, and eventually, it gets to the point where people will understand that five hundred dollar class is a class. That ninety nine dollar class, probably not so much. People will realize that immediately. The word about town will get around is what I'm getting at. Simon closes it by saying, really summing up what we just said, professional responsibility does not necessarily conflict with commercial gain. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Well, there you go. Agreed. He says, you can be a better scuba professional, people, by number one, picking up a copy of Simon Pridmore's book, Scuba Professional, which is what uh, this little article came from. Um, it's a great book that talks about what you as a scuba professional should be considering and thinking about as, as far as being a professional yourself and, and how you're going to deliver instruction, operations of, of the scuba business, uh, developing a better safety culture, and you know what is the state of the scuba nation? It's, it's it's got a lot of great great stuff in here. It's I mean it's a nice big over three hundred page book with a, with a bunch of great articles from hmm. it. So there you go. Get out there over to simonpridmore.com and order a book and send them a message and tell them that you heard about this great article on Great Dive Podcast. Do it. Do it now. Okay. Fu Man Brando, are you ready to sign some logbooks? Uh, yeah, let's sign logbooks. Let's do this. Brando, it all comes down to you. Thanks, JT. Say hello to Ashley and have a tequila for me. I'll make it too. <laughs> make it too. All right, everybody, we will talk to you next week. Safe time.